Welcome to Monsters and Mixers, the spine-chilling podcast guaranteed to quench your thirst for all things spooky and one thing drinky. Can't get enough of paranormal or true crime stories? Then this is the place for you. We are your hosts, Amy and Emma, and each episode will feature a new story and a new cocktail recipe to help calm your nerves while you listen. So grab your ingredients, pull the covers up tight, and prepare to be terrified by tales of the darkness among us. While we appreciate you joining us for Monsters and Mixers, we want to make sure you all are aware that we will be discussing adult content. That includes alcohol, suicide, murder, and in this episode, rape. We do our best to not get too graphic, but there is a chance something we discuss could trigger you. Please listen at your own discretion and use your best judgment when deciding if this podcast episode is going to be the one for you. If you are not an adult, this is probably not the place for you. Talk to your parents first to make sure they agree with you listening. Do you believe a building can be evil? And I don't mean have evil things happen in it. I mean like true evil. Like the building itself has an evil energy that can impact the people who live there. I believe that so many horrendous events can take place in one central location and ultimately lead to a building taking on a life of its own. Different places definitely have different energies and oftentimes those energies mixed with the wrong person can create a recipe for disaster, which is very evident in the place that we're going to talk about today. Not only that, but I think that evil people hear about these sorts of nefarious places and are drawn to them. I agree. I definitely think places can be evil and I wholeheartedly believe the building we're going to talk about today was evil from its conception. The Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California has amassed quite the stack of bodies since it opened on December 20th, 1924, and I don't know of a better word to describe it other than evil. Before we dive into it, we're going to talk about today's drink mixer. Created in Los Angeles in 1941, the Moscow Mule was made famous by John G. Martin. The story goes that Martin was a marketing executive who took a photo of a bartender holding a bottle of the new Smirnoff vodka in one hand and a copper Moscow mule mug in the other. The photo was then used to show bartenders and patrons and surrounding bars what their competition was selling, which is pretty genius. John G. Martin claims that he and Jack Morgan, a local pub owner, created the drink together, but others claim it was actually created in Manhattan. No matter where it came from, it is pretty delicious and easy to make. You just need vodka, or in this case, uh, we're using flavored vodka. We're actually going to use cherry and then the ginger beer and limes. Traditionally, you also need a copper mug, but we're not that super fancy and don't have any at the house. So we're going to be using just a different um, glass mason jar, or you can use, we have these little frozen mugs that go in our freezer and keep everything nice and cold. The recipe, to get technical, is one and a half ounces of vodka. So that's one shot. You can add more or less if you have the desire to have a little, have a little more, a little less, just depends on what you want. And then you also need four ounces of ginger beer. So for those of you who don't know, ginger beer is a real thing. It's not Bud Light or Natty Light. It actually exists. So you go to the store and you look for ginger beer and then you take lime wedges. So you just put your shot in, put the ginger beer in, then you squeeze in the lime and mix it all up. You also need ice, of course, unless you like hot drinks, and I don't know who does. Um, This is one of my first times having a Moscow Mule, and I really, really like it. 
I like it too. I think the cherry is a very nice touch with the ginger beer and the lime. I don't think I could do this with just regular vodka though. I'm not a fan of just unflavored vodka if it's not mixed with something tasty. Yeah, I am exactly the same way. I do really like it though. I, after last um, drink, I was embracing myself to have another letdown because I really did not enjoy that. Um, sorry if you tried yours also and didn't like it. If you want to try drinks that we're having, like and follow Monsters and Mixers on Facebook. We post our recipes the day before or the day of our episode so that you can kind of feel like you're connected to us and doing your thing while we do our thing. And so you can make your drinks and have your drinks with us. Yeah, I feel like the key to a good, organic, healthy podcast is to have a lot of like audience interaction and mingling in the audience. So even if we're not like having conversations with you directly, just having like something out there that you can like do alongside with us as you listen, just to make you feel like you're more a part of us than just like listening to us speak to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hopefully everyone now has your cocktails ready and we can begin. The Cecil Hotel was originally built as a cherished addition to the once booming Wall Street of the West. The Cecil was designed to be a masterpiece that catered to businessmen and tourists alike. It cost $1.5 million to complete, which doesn't sound like a lot by today's money, but back then it was a lot of money. The architect behind the hotel spared no expense to make it a marvel to behold. It had stained, or has, because it's still standing, Stained glass windows, potted palms all about it, alabaster statues, uh, and the lobby is made of marble. At the time, it was one of LA's fanciest destinations. Sadly, all of this work to make this such a beautiful place was all undone when the Great Depression hit. Along with the Depression came the shuttering of businesses and transit alike, which caused the area to become more dependent on the freeway. Now, you might wonder why this is a big deal for the Cecil. Well, it was built to be easily accessible by streetcar. And with that gone and people fleeing to suburban areas, the Cecil's fate was sealed. The once booming downtown area became a modern day ghost town. The Cecil actually was one of the lucky hotels in that it stayed open during this time. Many others in the area were not as fortunate and closed for good. So restaurants, bars, and jewelry stores all continue to operate on the ground floors of skyscrapers while the empty caverns of once booming buildings loomed above them. Sadly, this caused a huge problem for many low-income families and individuals, and they were forced out onto the street. The result of this is what we now refer to as Skid Row. And no, it's not the 80s hairband. Skid Row or Skid Road is a term that refers to an area of a city where people live who are, quote, on the skids, or people who have no money and nothing to do. Skid Row, which is located just yards from the Cecil, is a neighborhood in downtown LA's Central City East District, and it's home to around 4,000 to 8,000 people at any given time. It's known for its condensed hom homeless population since the 1930s, and has long been the target of police raids, city initiatives, homelessness advocacy, and is a very high crime area. Its 50 city blocks cover a large swath of the downtown Los Angeles area, and, the skid, and skid Row is responsible for almost 60% of the total crime in the LA area. Which is really sad because Skid Row could almost be considered to have been created by the community in which it resides. In the 1970s, it became a kind of, quote, containment zone 
for the homeless. And by that, I mean that shelters and services for homeless people were set up so that no one could leave to get help. Essentially, once the politicians and other people who ran the city got the homeless people in there, they wanted to make sure that it was really hard for them to get out. And the reason for that is that they thought if they kept all the homeless people in one spot, it would keep the problems that were in those neighborhoods from spilling out into other areas. It was almost like they thought they could save the rest of the city if they sacrificed this one population of people. And sadly, politicians weren't the only ones who turned their backs on the needy citizens of Skid Row. Hospitals and law enforcement were found to have dumped homeless people into the area after they received treatment or got out of custody. And it was people who had not even lived on Skid Row before that, just anybody that they thought needed to be in that area. Um, over the years, they've had lots of attempts to try and rehabilitate Skid Row, but none of them have been successful so far. Are you wondering what this has to do with the Cecil? Great question. The proximity of Skid Row to the Cecil has contributed to the hotel's bad reputation over the years and has allowed a criminal element to seep into the hotel on a regular basis. And I don't want that to sound like we're saying that all of the crimes that are being committed inside of the Cecil are committed by the people who live on Skid Row because that's not the case. I believe what happens is that people who are criminals or people who feel like they want to commit a crime, they see a place that is located directly next to Skid Row, which is demonized and outcast by the state of California. And they think that if they're at a place in such close proximity to Skid Row, that the things that they do and the crimes that they commit and the nefarious actions that they partake in are not going to be noticed because LAPD has bigger fish to fry and they're looking at Skid Row and I, yeah, I'm not trying to make it seem like we think that the reason that the Cecil is seedy is because of Skid Row because that's not the case. Um, offering, they offered rooms at an extremely low rate and the hotel became a refuge for individuals who otherwise would have been living on the street. Um, the area evolved into a place where alcoholics and drug users could easily find a meal, a bed, and like-minded people who wanted to party. That isn't to say that the Cecil didn't have its issues from the beginning, but it really began to attract some terrible people later on, including two serial killers that we know of. In January of 1927, just a few years after opening its doors, the Cecil saw its first documented suicide. A man by the name of Percy Orman Cook, who was 52, was staying at the hotel after a fight with his wife. After failing to reconcile the relationship with her and his child, he shot himself in the head. There are some conflicting stories about if he died in the hotel or not because some say he was rushed to the hospital and died at the hospital. But the death records say he died the same night, leaving some to speculate that it was actually in the Cecil and that he was dead when he left. Um, either way, his death marks the first of 13 deaths by suicide to have occurred in the building. And the next suicide to be reported in the Cecil happened in 1931, which is only five short years after the first one. Um, this happened when W.K. Norton checked in via an alias. He took two poison capsules in his room and hotel staff found him in a few hours after his death. No note was left, but there were more poison capsules found in the room, so it was ruled a suicide by the police. Not too long after, in September of 1932, a maid named Carrie Brown found 25-year-old Benjamin 
Dodich, mm -hmm. dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He also did not leave a note behind, but the single shot to the temple was enough for the police to feel confident in labeling it as death by suicide. And then one of the most gruesome suicides at the Cecil was in June of 1934, just a few years later, when an ex-Army Medical Corps Sergeant Louis Borden, who was 53 at the time, slit his own throat with a razor. He did leave several notes and said he was in poor health. And sadly, in one of the notes that he left behind, he asked that his, um, we, many speculate was maybe his girlfriend, uh, Miss Edna Hassener of Washington, be the sole beneficiary of the small amount of money that he and belongings he had to leave behind. And it's such a sad story to think of somebody's life ending while they were totally alone in such a um, place that at that time even was becoming um, quite horrible. And such a brutal way to go out to. Yeah. Now, this, de this death is labeled as a suicide, but many wonder if it might be the first documented murder at the Cecil. According to the newspaper article written about her death, in March of 1937, Grace E. Margot, who was 25, was found in telephone wires that were ripped from poles in her descent, and they were entangled about her body. The article also goes on to state that her 26-year-old sailor companion, M.W. Madison, was sleeping when she fell, jumped, or I think was maybe pushed out of the window. He claimed he had no idea why she would do something like that. Somehow, the manager, who I'm assuming was not in the room with them, was able to corroborate his story, which is fishy from any perspective, and I'm not sure I would feel confident or comfortable saying what absolutely happened in a room that I wasn't in, but that's just me. Yeah, and then the next two deaths, sorry, we're talking about a lot of death, um, involved both military men and occurred just a year apart. The first was Roy Thompson. He was a United States Marine Corps fireman who was just 35, and he jumped from the top floor of the building and was found on the skylight of an adjacent uh, building. He had been staying at the hotel for a few weeks, and his death was also ruled a suicide. Then in May of 1939, there was a Navy officer named Erwin Neblett who was found dead in his room after ingesting poison. He was found by a maid who called the police, but it was too late to save him. And I feel really bad for all these poor workers at the Cecil because I can't imagine the stress of living in a place where you're finding dead bodies a lot. I would imagine that their turnover rate was probably pretty big. Um, I hope that these people were able to get some kind of therapy afterwards because it sounds awful and the mental anguish would be horrible. And it also is weird because I'm sure that they got desensitized at some point because after a while it's just another day on the job. Like, oh, gotta call the police again to come pick another body out of one of the rooms. But uh, that's very true. And I want to talk about the way these people were taking their lives. So many took poison and that's not a common way to end one's life. But the next suicide at the Cecil did just that. In January of 1940, a 45-year-old teacher named Dorothy Seeger was found unconscious in her room after ingesting poison. She was reported to have died on January 12th. Where are all these people getting this poison? Um, actually, I did some research for the show. And I get naturally curious when I start noticing trends and things when we're doing some background. And so I googled it, and it turns out that poison is the second most common way people take their lives which is really tragic and sad. And I think this would be a good time for us to talk about resources for anyone who is considering taking their life. You are not alone. Please find someone you feel comfortable speaking with. 
a friend, a relative, your preacher, minister, somebody at school, a teacher, just find someone. And if you don't have someone, there are some resources at the national level, which you can call. You can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. You can also find information on suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Both of those resources are readily available, so please make sure that if you are having thoughts of ending your life that you find someone who can help you. Not only were there an abundance of deaths by suicide at the Cecil, but there were also several murders. The first of which is such a horribly tragic story that occurred in September of 1944. Dorothy Purcell and her boyfriend Ben Levine were staying at the hotel. And the story is a tad scandalous for the time considering Ben was a 38-year-old shoes salesman and Dorothy was only 19 at the time of the incident. She was unaware that she was pregnant and she went into labor and in order to not disturb her sleeping boyfriend, she snuck off to the bathroom and gave birth to the baby. Uh, which is totally normal behavior, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> nope. Uh, once she delivered the baby, who was a boy and was never named, Dorothy, who claimed she thought the baby was dead, tossed him out of the window. The poor infant landed on the roof of an adjacent building. Ultimately, she was not found guilty of murder in 1945 after three different psychiatrists testified she was mentally confused at the time of the incident. I'm not sure how mentally confused one would have to be to throw a newborn out of a window, but I seriously hope she was able to get some help and was able to live a somewhat normal life afterward. It's kind of sad how fragile the human brain is and how scary it is sometimes. Uh, especially after having just given birth when your hormones are completely out of whack. And in this case, I don't even think it's just hormones. She was 19 and was pregnant by a 38-year-old who wasn't, neither of which apparently were aware that she was pregnant. So I guarantee that it was also just like panic mode in her brain. Like, I have to get rid of this now. Um, get rid of the problem before anyone's even aware that there was one. Yeah, and her even her being afraid to wake him and sneaking off to the bathroom to me indicates that there might have been not it might not have been the most friendly relationship possibly there could have been some issues that they had i don't know i'm just speculating i don't know that for a fact but i do think that we are way more fortunate today even though there's lots of strides that still need to be made that we can tackle mental illness a little bit better um back in the 40s and things it was very taboo to be labeled with mental illness and people didn't seek out help and as a community i feel like we're becoming a little more accepting yeah especially women at that time like women were so afraid of being labeled as like crazy or certifiably insane that a lot of the times what they were experiencing was completely normal and that their brains were just thrown off by chemical imbalances and they didn't want to tell anyone because they didn't want to be locked away in a room and just like left to fend for themselves yeah that's really really sad i'm glad that like i said i'm glad we are making some strides um this is a kind of heavy i feel like a really heavy episode because we're talking about so much murder and death and suicide and believe it or not we're only halfway through the stories of people who have lost their lives at the cecil um, the place really does have quite a history of sadness, murder, and death. Between the years 1947 and 1962, four additional people fell from the building. And I say fell because it 
isn't always known if they fell, jumped, were pushed. There's so little that was known about that. And the first was Robert Smith, who was 35, Helen Gurney, who was 55, Julia France Moore, 50, and Pauline Otten, 27. They all either jumped or fell from the windows of the hotel. Both Smith and Gurney fell or jumped from the seventh floor, Moore the eighth, but Otten's story has an even stranger twist than just becoming another one of the Cecil's victims. She jumped from the ninth floor window after having an argument with her estranged husband, Dewey. There were no witnesses to the incident because Dewey left the room prior to her jumping. However, there was another person involved, and that was this man named George Gianni. Poor George was only involved because he just so happened to be walking by below when Pauline jumped out of the window and landed on him. So it killed them both instantly because she jumped from the ninth floor. Um, investigators originally had thought that he was a double suicide with her, but then they quickly realized by the positioning of his body and the fact that he was still wearing shoes that that did not support his theory. George was found with his hands in his pockets, and that is a very unlikely position for someone who jumps out a window. Usually your arms would be flailing or just at your sides. Um, so yeah, poor George just walking about doing his daily routine and this woman jumps out of the building and falls on him and his life was taken by the Cecil in a very weird and tragic way. Yeah, I believe I read an article recently about something similar that happened where a woman like jumped from a building in an attempt to kill herself and landed on another person killing them both, which is just such a crazy thing to have happen to you. Like you're just doing your afternoon stroll past the Cecil and you're like splatted on the concrete. That sounds awful. Yeah. Um, and that is awful. And so is this next story. Six years prior to her death, Pigeon Goldie, as she was known to her friends at the hotel, moved into the Cecil. Not much is known about why the then 59-year-old moved into the hotel, but she did move in alone. And apparently, with the small pensions the elderly usually received, and her being without a husband to help her, it isn't entirely surprising that Goldie ended up in a cheap, pay-by-the-month hotel such as a Cecil. Goldie quickly became one of the hotel's most popular residents, and she had a large amount of friends she socialized with, both at the hotel and in the surrounding community. She gained her nickname from her daily activities. Pigeon Goldie spent most of her time outside of the hotel feeding the pigeons in the nearby Pershing Square for hours a day. She was easy to pick out while she was catering to the small, smaller pigeons in the square because she was always wearing an L.A. Dodgers basketball cap. And that reminds me of the lady in Home Alone who is in, like, Central Park with all the birds on top of her. Did um, you say basketball cap? I think you said basketball. I said ba if I said basketball cap, I am so sorry. Dad, don't listen to this. L.A. Dodgers baseball cap. Um, her last day alive was spent much like all of her others, feeding her beloved birds and chatting with her friends in the hotel. A hotel worker discovered her dead in her room just one hour after she had been seen downstairs with the other tenants. And this is where our trigger warning comes in here. Um, this is a violent sexual assault that took place. And if you are sensitive to that, then I uh, suggest that you don't listen to this one. But she had been raped, stabbed, and beaten, and her room was ransacked in an apparent robbery attempt. Um, the community was super stunned to learn that such a vicious crime had happened to such a wonderful woman. She was really very much loved. And so it happened so soon after so many people had just seen her. Uh, it left many in the hotel shaken and scared, 
until an arrest was made in the murder. So they very quickly arrested this man named Jacques Ellinger. He was 29 years old, and they thought for sure they had... Okay, now I can correct you, because that is Jacques, not Jocks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's French. There's an S at the Jacques. end of his name, but you don't pronounce that S, I don't think. All right, so <laughs> you can't say baseball, and I can't say jock. Um, so anyway, they thought for sure they had their guy because he was found wandering around Pershing Square, which is where Goldie had been just before the murder took place, feeding the pigeons, and he was covered in blood. His clothes were soaked with blood, and so they naturally assumed he had to be the person who had just been at the Cecil and had murdered her. However, later he was acquitted of the crime and cleared of all the charges. They found some evidence. It's not really specific on why they acquitted him, but they were pretty confident that that was not, that he was not the one. And sadly to this day, Pigeon Goldie's murder remains unsolved. Very little clues exist to even solve it. Um, It has been speculated for many years though that she might have been the victim of a serial killer that was responsible for murdering um, Viva Brown, who was staying at a hotel in the same area. Considering the Cecil's known connection to at least two for real serial killers, I don't find that theory to be too far off. And as we're going through this, I just imagine like if this were to happen at this time, like in modern day, like 2021, that so many of these murders and deaths would be solved and wouldn't be so mysterious because we would have like security footage or just like more eyes on the place um if pigeon goldie were to be have staying at the cecil at a time like 2021 i feel like the justice would have been served for her at least i hope it would have been because you know we have actual like cameras that can show you who went into her room or like everything that led up to the events that occurred when she was inside. Um, but uh, yeah, as my mom mentioned, the, the Cecil does have a known connection to at least two serial killers, but we aren't quite ready for that part of the story yet because we still have a few more victims of the hotel to pay respect to. From the time of Pigeon Goldie's murder in 1964 until November of 1975, the beast within the Cecil seemed to be satisfied for a while. There were no reported murders or suicides during this time period, but that changed in December of 1975, when an unidentified woman who registered under the fake name of Allison Lowell jumped from her 12th floor window and landed on the second floor roof. Allison was thought to have been between the age of 20 to 30, and her true identity remains unknown still today. And thankfully, after that, there was another pretty large lull in the activity at the hotel, and the next tragedy didn't occur until September 1st of 1992. At this time, another unidentified person, a man who was believed to have also been in his 20s to 30s, was found to either have fallen, jumped, or been pushed from the hotel's 15th floor. And that brings us then to February of 2013 and the most famous case of accidental death, or some still believe murder, that occurred at the CISO Hotel. And that is the story of Eliza Lamb. And it's no wonder with all of the death and potential murders and suicides and things that happened in the Cecil that over the years it's become kind of a like a legend or a source of folklore, which is where all the haunting theories come in and all the haunted sightings and things of that nature, which makes sense because 
sometimes when there is that much death and things that happen in a building, the residual energy can stay behind. And I know Emma's probably going to disagree with me a little bit about that because she is, like we've talked about before, more of a skeptic about things than I am. And I truly do believe that part of us and essence of us and energy stays behind. And I think that even if in the early days of the Cecil, the people were just simply committing suicide or just simply dying, that maybe their energy stayed behind and it caused some of the other people to then follow in their footsteps. And I know it sounds a little crazy, but it is just how I feel. I do think that those who have passed before us can influence us in ways. And with so much death having happened at the Cecil, it is definitely a theory that a lot of people gravitate towards, that it's haunted and the ghosts drive people to behave in this manner. I also, I don't, you're right, I don't necessarily agree with that because I don't want to imply that all of the people who have lost their lives in this place have now, like, lingered on to persuade or, like, influence other people to, like, follow in their footsteps. Because a lot of these people who died at the Cecil or who killed themselves at the Cecil were innocent people. Like, they're not evil human beings who want to, like, stay to linger and, like, influence other people to also kill themselves in the same way that they did. I do believe that energy can stay behind, and I do assume that this place is probably pretty jam-packed with it and um the folklore and the story because whenever i heard about the cecil it was always like this haunted hotel it was never like we're gonna talk about how so many horrible things have happened that are like completely unrelated to the paranormal um so i do believe that i'm sure i'm sure that it is probably haunted in a way and we recently watched the ghost adventures episode where they it was pretty recent where they um, did like a full investigation on it. And it was honestly one of the more like active episodes that they've ever done. Um, but I do think also given its history that people are more drawn to it to investigate for like the paranormal and stuff like that. Um, not necessarily not saying that it is or isn't haunted, but I do think people would assume that it is given that it, it's history. I agree. But being someone who fully... and invest myself in believing in hauntings and things i'm going to gravitate more towards that might be the cause for some not all but i do think maybe some of the things that have happened might be from some even just maybe some just overall bad energy in it it doesn't have to be from the people and that's I, also what i was going to say i feel like a lot of the bad energy probably came from the living people who were in that building i mean imagine like being a 20 something person who's like i'm gonna go stay at this hotel because it's cheap and i can pay by the night and then i'm gonna have a place to rest my head at the end of the night and then you get in there and there's like floors dedicated up high to insanely nefarious things um in one of the documentaries we watched one of the guys who currently lives on Skid Row, I think, who had stayed in the Cecil for, like, years on end, said that there were some floors at the top that were known for, like, I don't go there. Like, you don't go up there unless, <clears throat> excuse me, unless you're wanting to commit a crime, unless you're wanting to, like, you take people that you want to kill up there, yeah. essentially, because you know that, like, no one's going to come up there to check because that's what it's known for. So I, I can imagine, like, being a young person who doesn't really know much about Los Angeles, and then you're staying in this place with all these people who are doing drugs and drinking into all the ends of the night bringing prostitutes back in there and killing people, like literally murdering people upstairs. 
that those outside influences from real people probably could cause you to kind of like lose your shit a little bit. And there's always that theory that people are way more prone to believe someplace is haunted when that seed is planted into their head. And that is actually something I want to explore and maybe do a whole episode on later where the subliminal messaging and things behind yeah it's like the placebo effect behind haunting haunted places it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah but either way um we have still have to dive into the most famous accidental death or like we said some people believe it might have been a murder um i'm gonna let you go ahead and take it from here for a second of course so uh eliza lamb has been the subject of countless theories and speculations over the years. And I'm sure many of you have watched the documentaries. Um, there was one that came out on Netflix recently that I just talked about called The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel or the Hotel Cecil, where they did a uh, like four or five episode deep dive into her alone because you can do a documentary about the Cecil and she's probably not going to get much screen time because so much has happened there. But they dedicated this documentary to her only. And I'm sure that some of you have seen the videos, the infamous elevator security cam footage video, and other mediums that have discussed her disappearance and death. It's a very widely talked about subject. Um, I remember hearing about it like when it happened, and still to this day, there are podcast episodes and YouTube videos with people who are talking about her story and the weird, strange events that followed. So um, we wish to pay her and her family the respect they deserve by not sensationalizing her tragic end. Um, And we're just going to state the facts that are known. We're not going to sensationalize it as it has been done by the media and countless others. Um, Elisa was a Canadian student who ventured off on a grand vacation alone in January of 2013. During this trip, she made a stop at the Stay on Main Hotel. And we'll talk more on that name later. Um, She had initially shared a room with a few other girls who asked for a change of rooms due to Elisa's increasingly bizarre behavior, and it's speculated by those who investigated that she may have stopped taking her medication that was treating her bipolar disorder, and this may be why her behavior seemed erratic and alarming to the other girls. I believe they talked about her, like, leaving post-it notes that said, like, random little letters, like, random little messages on their bed. Like, she would, like, come in and just, like, sit and, like, stare and, like, not really talk. She was a very quiet person and standoffish. Just her behavior was very bizarre for people who had never been around her before. And especially if you know anything about, like, like cold turkey stopping um, antipsychosis and behavioral and bipolar medicine, um, that your brain can do some really crazy shit. And I believe that that is what plays a massive factor in what happened after. But um, she went missing on January 31st, 2013. And three weeks later, her naked body was found inside of the rooftop water tanks. The search of the tanks was initiated by the hotel after a multitude of guests began to complain about the water tasting awful and the water pressure being bad. And that's where the sensationalizing thing kind of comes into play. Because when the story first broke, everyone talked about, oh, like black water black water and red water her blood was in the water and if even if you go on to like the cecil hotel's yelp reviews all of their reviews are random internet trolls who are talking about how the water is black and just being really rude about a real human being who actually faced a tragic demise right i give it one stars the water tasted terrible and just trying to be really funny and making a mockery of something that really was not a funny situation at all yeah. Uh, once Elias 
See, I keep saying Eliza, and I know it's wrong. Eliza's body. Elisa. Elisa. Once Elisa's body was found, an investigation was launched into what occurred the hours before her disappearance. During this investigation, a video of her behaving strangely in the elevator emerged, like Emma had talked about earlier. Um, this video was the primary source of wild speculation that she was being chased by a killer who murdered her and then lugged her body to the roof and dumped it into the water basin. And when you watch the video, which you can find countless copies of all over the place, you can see her peeking her head out and looking back side to side where it looks like she is looking for someone or looking at someone. At one point, it looks like she might be talking to someone. However, knowing that she potentially had gone off her medication, it is very probable that she might have been talking to someone, but that someone was not there, that someone was imagined or um, hallucinated by her. And so there's also the thing, too, that it's been pretty just readily disproven that no one could have climbed up to the top of the roof with her body and climbed up the tiny little stair. It wasn't even a stair. It's a ladder with her on them and then opened the top and thrown her in. It's almost physically impossible that that could have happened. And they even talk about in several of the documentaries and things, the man who found her even talked about how it was really difficult to climb up the ladder. And so it is, if you look at the, the facts and the things as they were presented, pretty unlikely that she was quote unquote murdered when she did it. Um, so then there's some other theories that people like to, to delve into. And this is also based on the elevator footage and kind of goes back to what I was talking to earlier about the residual energy and possible haunting there. And there are some people that believe that she might've been being hunted by a ghost. I love a good ghost story. I live for it. I am 100% invested all the time into a good horror story, but I, even I, who loves B-budget movies and everything, find exploiting the last minutes of a mentally ill young woman to sell the story of a haunted hotel to be in very poor taste, which is why we're trying to tell you the facts of what happened and not buy into the whole sensational story. And I also want to say, like, when that video was released, that was it. Like, her case had not been solved. Um, I don't even think her body had been found yet when they released that so. footage to the public. So this is to no fault of the public for thinking that it's weird because as an outsider with no actual facts, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. when you see it now and you know what she was actually going through, you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. But as someone who is just being shown this video with no context um, of a missing girl, it's very strange. Like at that point, they didn't even know that she was dead. So when you're watching that and you're like this young girl who is not from LA is now missing. And this, these are the last moments of her to our knowledge on video. When you watch that, it is weird mm -hmm. um, to assume that someone is on the outside, like kind of like playing this game of like cat and mouse with her is not far fetched when you look at what you're given. Um, now that we know the facts, I think the distastefulness and the disrespect comes into play when you have her family and the people who were directly involved with her life and the case itself and police officers and such telling you that this was just a girl who was having a mental breakdown and you still insist that 
there was like a demon who was like playing games with her in an elevator. I think that's when the disrespect comes into play. But for those people in 2013, when that video was put on YouTube randomly, like, please help us find this girl. This is what she was last seen wearing. I don't think they were out of bounds to say, see, say that that was weird because it was. No, absolutely not. And there is actually one connection throughout time that's kind of bothered me. And I remember when I first heard about her disappearance and my brain was like trying to connect why this story seemed so familiar and why I was like, wow, that I feel like I've heard this before, but it didn't make any sense because it was like the first day that she was missing. And there's this movie that came out back in 2005 called Dark Water and it stars Jennifer Connelly and this really great um, young actress at the time named, uh, I believe it's Ariel Gade. And John C. Riley's in it for a little bit. And it's about a mom and a daughter who move into a rundown apartment building where they are haunted by a ghost of a former tenant. And I don't want to give too much away because it really is a movie that's worth watching, especially hearing about the disappearance of the Cecil and watching it and just kind of looking for those coincidental pieces between the two stories because it does present pretty creepy. And so... Essentially, without, like I said, without giving too much away, it's there's a strange disappearance at the apartment building that she lives at and an accidental drowning in the building's water tower, which is, hello, what we just, you know, pretty much talked about happening. And many people have noted that the police in the movie are even led to the roof because residents started complaining about bad-tasting water and dark water in this case, hence the name. So... I mean, it's almost kind of just eerily similar. You have to watch it. There's even some parts where uh, the trailer, several trailers that they put together, and I can't remember if these scenes were actually in the actual movie, if it was just one of those like cut, cut floor things um, that they put into the trailer only, where the elevator buttons in the movie, like Jennifer Connelly's in the elevator and she's getting ready to go up, and the elevator buttons appear to malfunction and the door won't close, which is very similar and very reminiscent to what actually happens in the true-to-life video footage that we have of the Cecil. I mean, it's obviously just a movie, but I did find the connections and the similarities to be very, very eerie. Yeah, I haven't um, seen Dark Water. I still need to watch it. I love some John C. Riley. But in that documentary on Netflix that I was talking about, they also mentioned the comparisons. And my mom had mentioned them before, and I was like, oh, that is weird. But even in the documentary, they put, like, scene by scene in Dark Water next to, like, a dramatization of what happened to Elisa, like, scene by scene. And it is very eerie when you see the similarities because it's it's one thing to be like okay well this person was like strangled to death and i saw that in a movie once it's like yeah that happens pretty often but for something so specific i mean i've never heard of another case in which a young girl went missing in a hotel and then her body was later found in the water tank on the roof like i've never heard about that before no. so to have like such a specific storyline followed almost exactly um Except, of course, in Dark Water, the forces were paranormal, and in the, this real-life case, they were not. But, uh, yeah, it is very strange. Yeah, and, I, I mean, we can't really prove any of it to be connected, but it is definitely one of those theories that's still out there floating around. Um, I think we probably will never know with 100% accuracy 
what happened at the Cecil the night that uh, she disappeared. But I do think we can say that no matter what actually occurred, we wish her family and her the peace they deserve, as we do all the victims who have met their tragic end at the hotel. Our last death at the Cecil was reported on June 13, 2015, and was yet another unidentified 20-something-year-old man. He remains unknown to this day, as do the circumstances surrounding his death, and unofficially it is listed as an accidental death by falling. However, no one really knows. Uh, that is quite the long list of tragic events for one city, let alone one building, and we haven't even gotten into the stay on Main stuff, as we talked about with Elisa, or the two serial killers who stayed there. Um, we're gonna take a quick breather and grab another drink, and then we're gonna dive into the rest of the story. So, if any of you listening are true crime buffs like myself, um, most of you have probably heard about the Night Stalker, whose legal name was Ricardo or Richard Ramirez. The Night Stalker story has recently gained a little more traction in the media, recently with the release of the Netflix documentary centered around his killings, but he also has some loose ties to the Cecil. Born February 29, 1960 in El Paso, Texas, Richard Ramirez is, or was, a convicted serial killer sentenced to California's death row at San Quentin State Prison. Prior to his arrest, the media dubbed him the Night Stalker as he terrorized California. So for the years or the year in which he committed his crimes, his identity was completely unknown. So as the media does, they give him some cool little nickname, which I don't know how most of you feel about that. I don't really like it because I feel like that's oftentimes people are like, that's what they want. You're like, oh, I'm the Night Stalker. Um, And I feel like it's also done to generate terror and get a response and right i don't understand yeah what it's very that... like movie-esque like yeah. but it's real life things that are happening um it's claimed that he may have been influenced into becoming a murderer by his cousin mike who was a special forces veteran or vietnam war veteran who bragged of killing and torturing his vietnamese enemies and showed young richard polaroids of his victims and if i remembering correctly when i say young i mean like really young like prepubescently young like 12, 10 to 12 years old young. Um, Ramirez was also present the night that Mike shot and killed his wife, and it's said that he was so close in proximity that her blood splattered on Richard's face. On April 10th, 1984, Ramirez murdered nine-year-old May Lung in the basement of the hotel where he was living in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And just to specify, this is not the Cecil Hotel. This is a completely different hotel in San Francisco, not Los Angeles. He raped and beat the girl before stabbing her to death and hanging her body from a pipe. This was his first known killing, but was not identified as being connected to the subsequent crime spree until 2009, which is long after his arrest, when his DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. The Night Stalker crimes began with Jenny Vincow on June 28, 1984. Um, She was 79 years old and was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. She had been stabbed repeatedly while asleep in her bed, and her throat was slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. His fingerprint was found on a mesh screen he removed to gain access through an open window. He went on to commit countless other murders, sexual assaults, and burglaries until he was finally caught by a neighborhood mob and arrested on August 31st, 1985. Between the span of April 10th, 1984, up until the point of his capture, he carried out 14 gruesome murders across California. In 1989, he was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 
five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. And he was sentenced to death and died in the jail in 2013. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering what this has to do with the Cecil and where the Cecil comes into play in this story. It is believed that Richard frequented the Cecil and stayed there in 1985 near the end of his reign of terror. This is never mentioned in the Netflix documentary. He did actually stay at the Cecil Hotel during the killings. His room was on the 14th floor, but as we, as far as we know, he never brought any of his victims back to the hotel. It was simply a safe place for him to return after a night of murder and debauchery, and it's also claimed that he stashed his bloody clothes in the basement. Kim Cooper, an author and Los Angeles true crime tour guide, once said in an interview that the Cecil is, quote, one of those hotels that's well known for this type of crime. It's where serial killers go to let their hair down. That being said, there is yet another serial killer who chose to put down roots at the Cecil as kind of an homage to the Night Stalker. And his name was Johan, or Jack, and I believe it's Unterweger. Um, that's my best pronunciation. That's what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, we don't speak Austrian. Yeah. Uh, Jack Unterweger was born in 1955 in Austria, and he was a serial killer who murdered prostitutes in several countries. During his youth, he was in and out of prison multiple times for assaulting local sex workers, and in 1975, he murdered 18-year-old Margaret Schaefer by strangling her with her own bra. Now, this is where, when I was researching this crime, I got enraged. Because when you hear what follows after this, and you see the gross negligence by law enforcement in this case, I feel like you will also be angered. But he was sentenced to life in prison, and in that time, he used that time to... Um, study. He studied English and he read a lot and he also became an author of short stories, poems, plays, and an autobiography, which was a huge success with critics and the public. Um, this autobiography was such a huge, huge success that he was released after only 16 years of his life term because he thought he, he was thought to be a successful re-socialized prisoner. And in the first year after his release, police found later that he killed six more sex workers in Austria. Surprise! Um, you just released someone who brutally murdered an 18-year-old girl with her own bra to the public because he wrote a book you liked. Right. And thought that he was re-socialized, uh, which is just mind-blowing to me. I'm not even sure you can be re-socialized from doing something like that, but um, his connection to the Cecil actually began in 1991 when he was hired by an Austrian magazine to write about crime in Los Angeles. Because who better to write about crime than a criminal, I guess. He wrote articles about prostitution in L.A.'s red light district and did rides around town with the local police. So he was kind of elevated to this really gross like social status where he had people kind of fanboying all over about him and was allowed these liberties. During his time in L.A., Three prostitutes, Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Sherry Ann Long, were beaten, sexually assaulted with tree branches, and finally strangled with their own bras, uh, a pattern very much likened to what he had done previously. Back in Austria, the police had enough evidence for his arrest, but he was gone to L.A. by the time they entered his home. So police chased him through Europe, Canada, and the U.S., and he was finally arrested by the FBI in Miami, Florida, on February 27, 1992. During his time as a fugitive, he called the Austrian media and tried to convince them he was innocent. 
Thankfully, this did not work out, and he was charged with 11 homicides in Austria and was found guilty by a jury of... <laughs> nine. <laughs> nine murder. Of... I don't mean to laugh, but there is a very funny typo. Uh, yeah. He was found guilty um, by a jury of nine murders. It was only nine because no cause of death could be determined for two of them as nothing was found of their bodies but bones. I also want to mention that it's claimed that he entered the United States fully illegally. Like, given how strict, like, our laws are, they're not as strict as other countries, but if he had been convicted of a murder, and it's on record that he got sentenced to life in prison, and he has, like, no passport, I don't even think he had a passport, he would not have been able to enter our country, and people think that he somehow bypass those laws because it seems at this point he's bypassing every law so why not try to get into another country but i also think that like this austrian magazine needs to be like erased from right history like i don't know how they made the connection like this man just got out of prison for murdering a prostitute and you're gonna send him to la to investigate the red light district. And if none of you are familiar with the term red light district, that's usually like the sex working region of a city. So they thought, let's send this man who is known from a very young age to beat and brutalize and murder sex workers and women and prostitutes to investigate the sex work scene of another country. Right. Like that just like blows my mind. I have no clue it's how like that was allowed to happen. Sending him to an all you could eat buffet. Right, literally. It makes no sense at all. Thankfully, on June 29th of 1994, he was sentenced to life in prison again, this time without the possibility of parole, though. Unfortunately, for those of us who like to see justice actually carried out, he decided to take his own life by hanging himself with his pants that very night. Because he died before he could appeal the verdict, it was never legally valid. Um... So, according to Austrian law, Jack is to be regarded as innocent once again, which is seriously effed up. That there are no, there's no one that's ever going to answer technically for those crimes that he committed. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, we come back to, once again, we see this building attracting atrocious, violent people. And we can't even really blame this on him even having like any kind of an idea about the area he was in since he was from far away, which kind of brings me back to my theory that something in the energy just maybe sends out like some beacon to crazy murdery psychopaths. I agree that I will, we already know that he was attracted to the Cecil because of its roots with Richard Ramirez or like the rumors. And I'm sure he was also attracted to it because I am going to assume he wasn't like unknowing to it being directly next to Skid Row, where I'm assuming he probably found most of his victims. Um, Is there a high-level prostitution on Skid Row? I, I've I never mean, directly saw that, but I would assume. I Yeah, I don't want to assume, but given, like, the things that I have watched in interviews from people who live on Skid Row, when you're, like, forced to uh, fend for yourself, you have to resort to making money somehow. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, but I, contrary to your point, I don't see this one as a case of the Cecil turning this man violent. No, um, no. Because even before arriving to the Cecil, he already had committed a long string of violent murders and crimes, and he viewed this hotel as a welcoming place to rest his head after a long day of killing women. So I do agree that, yes, he was attracted to it because he knew that it was a place where he would probably not be found out. And he wasn't found out there. He wasn't caught until he was in Miami. Um, but... This was an already evil person who was going to probably do evil things regardless of where he was staying. Very true. Um, so we still haven't talked about the stay on main part, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. And um, it's really, we kind of need to circle back and talk about Miss um, Lamb also because it was during the time that she stayed there that the owners of the Cecil desperately tried to rebrand the hotel and they knew that they were going to be losing money and that people were not going to stay there anymore because when you were looking up the Cecil there were lots and lots of comments and reviews about the neighborhood being kind of sketchy and it wasn't really great and the hotel was full of you know semi-homeless people and was kind of dirty so they decided they were going to change the name and they were going to change it to the stay on main and it's really kind of weird because they didn't change the whole thing because according to the law in Los Angeles, they couldn't kick the long-term tenants out. They had to allow them to continue staying. And so they changed this tiny portion of the Cecil into the stay on main. And I'm doing this thing with my hands like you can see me right now <laughs> doing like four. It was literally like three or four floors. So people like Elisa Lamb were looking up places to stay and she didn't even get the information for the Cecil. So she was unfortunately an unwilling participant staying somewhere that she had no idea about the tumultuous history, had no clue what she was actually getting involved in. And it's kind of a really disgusting twist that she thought that she was staying somewhere good and that's ended up being where her life ended. And I'm not saying that the hotel had anything to do with her life ending, but it does kind of hit me with a little irony gut punch to think that they tried so hard to live down that infamy and still to this day it is still the Cecil and the Cecil will live on forever. In fact, they just got redone, um, re redone, just got finished redoing a bunch of things to it. A new owner came in and rumor is it's going to reopen for you to stay if you're crazy enough or so inclined. Um, and maybe even be able to do some paranormal investigating of your own. Yeah, and it's not even like when they reinvented themselves that it was like two completely separate hotels. Um, as you said, it was just like four floors that were sandwiched in between the Cecil. So it wasn't even like four floors on the left side of the hotel and then the rest is on the right. We're just going to block off everything above and below it. Like it was four floors in the middle of the Cecil and they shared an elevator. Yeah. So... I honestly, like whoever had this business plan, it blows my mind that they thought that this would ever work because you have these people. And as you can see in the Netflix documentary, a lot of the people who fall victim or fell victim to the stay on main rebranding were foreign people. Mm -hmm. Like Elisa was Canadian. There's a couple in there who were from England and they were looking up nice places to stay in the heart of downtown LA. I mean, these are people who like aren't familiar with the things that go on there or the Cecil at all. Like it's not going to be ingrained in their culture or things that they read about or listen to unless they're like actively seeking it out. So 
it just blows my mind that they thought that that would work. And honestly, like, some kind of, like, poetic evil justice in me, the fact that, like, right after they did that, this Elisa thing happened and completely blew their cover, where it was like, okay, well, now you're, like, bait-and-switching these tourists to stay in this area where your hotel is not revamped at all. You just have, like, nicer beds. Right. Like, that's it. Like, you you have nicer beds and, like, breakfast in the morning. Like, that's the only difference. And then something that I loved about the Netflix documentary that they did really well is they kind of exposed that. Like, they showed the thought process of a young Elisa, Canadian Elisa, who just wants to take a trip after graduation to experience things outside of her own country and go in LA and why she would choose that place. Because a lot of a lot of the questions that I saw that people had were like, why would she stay there? Like her family was not really keen on her going to begin with. Like you would think that like her family would look at the place that she was staying and be like, hell no, like you are not going there. You can find somewhere else to stay and you can go. But when she looked at that place, there was nothing bad. It looked like like a new hotel. It had good reviews because only like four people had stayed there. Like it looked like a nice hotel. It looked like a nice area. There were no news articles about someone being murdered in front of Stay on Main. Right. Because people weren't killed in front of Stay on Main, they were killed in front of the Cecil. And even to, I mean, to be fair, I'm not sure that I would even have any idea about the Cecil Hotel had that not happened. Because that really was when you heard about it. So outside of the LA people and that small community around that area, I don't think the Cecil had reached any, like, crazy notoriety to the point where uh, if I were Googling a place to stay and I was going to downtown LA and this cute little, what looked like a boutique um, hotel popped up, I might be inclined to book myself a room there or maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, definitely not now. Um, I'm not giving them a dime because I feel like the way that they've handled some of these things has just been absolutely horrible. And yes, they're under new management. You got to give them like at least a chance to try, but Given the way that things have panned out in the past, I don't foresee this ending well. No. Even me being me and wanting desperately to do paranormal investigations everywhere with my, you know, Christmas gifts. Because, yes, I got paranormal investigation equipment (sighs) for Christmas. um, I don't think I would be able to stay there. And more so because I think I would just feel gross. I feel like I just would not feel right doing it. Um... But I don't know. Time will tell, I guess, what the Cecil's true fate and history will end up playing out being. Maybe they'll turn it all around and it will end up being a good place. Emma's shaking her head no, and I have to probably agree with her. (laughs) I don't think so. But thanks again for listening to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. Don't forget to like and follow us. Leave a rating and share your stories. Please share your stories. We're actually getting ready to start doing some other um, smaller episodes in between. And if you don't share your stuff with us, we're not going to have very many of those to do. (laughs) Yeah, we're just going to have to tell the same five stories over and over again. We'll just start making stuff up. They'll never know. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I am very creative. But yeah, we'll see you next time when we dive into another terrifying tale and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horror. Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toasts.